Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Oh, there they are, flying overhead, the pale-bellied Brent geese, arriving into Ireland now from their nesting grounds in the high Canadian Arctic, a journey of some four and a half thousand kilometres or more. And here they are to spend the winter with us. Isn't it just wonderful? And if you look up at the sky this time of year, you'll often see the geese flying in what's called a V formation. We'll be discussing that a little bit later on in the programme because Airbus, you know Airbus, the people who make the planes, the big A380, the biggest jumbo jet in the sky. Well, they're involved in a project called Fellowfly and their intention is to get aircraft to follow behind each other in V formation the way the geese do in order to save energy and fuel and be more environmentally friendly. Can it work? Is it possible that in the future we'll see flocks of aircraft flying from Dublin to London? Who knows? We'll find out a little bit later on in the programme, but I'm sure you're all watching the big game last Saturday night. I certainly was. Pitch has gone in towards Ian Henderson. Sexton has it now in towards Gary Ringrose. Ringrose now goes forward with that one. Breaks through the cover inside the 22 to Mike Hansen. Trust Michael Corker to pick up on that kind of detail. Yes, he did say he was expecting 60,000. Nobody travelled like the Irish. And indeed, he was right. What a game. But I can't help feeling sorry for our fellow Celts, the Scots. And to think that we won't get to hear Flower of Scotland sung again in this tournament at any rate. Scotland, I love the Scots. Anyway, joining me in studio, Niall Hatch at her home in Terenure, Aina Nilana, and at his home in Malahide, Dr Richard Collins. Now, why are we talking about the rugby? Well, it has to do with all of the fans returning yesterday and today and what they might be bringing back with them in the form of bedbugs. Joining us also in studio, an old friend and researcher on the Mooney programme, Katrina McFadden. Katrina. Hey, hi, Derek. <laughs> hi, Lyle. Hi, Aina. Hi, Richard. So it's all in the news about bedbugs and people in France and the places overrun with bedbugs and be careful coming home and all that kind of stuff. Now, you told us a story years ago when you worked with us on the Mooney show. Would you like to retell the story? <laughs> Your encounter with bedbugs, please. Yeah, well, bedbugs are not unique to Paris, as many people who've travelled the world will know. Um, and you've invited me in today to make the nation... I know, so I am going to talk from the perspective of a bitey. So, <laughs> from, bitey, okay. so a few years ago, I went off on a round-the-world trip uh, for a few months, nearly a year, and the first place I would have encountered bed bugs was going down the east coast of Australia. And so I was on a budget, so I was staying in kind of youth hostels and whatever, and you learn fairly quickly not to book ahead because the place you might book into and maybe pay in advance for might have bed books. So you would land in a town and you would go up and down, check in accommodation to see if they had bed bugs before you committed to a room. Did you ask them, could you see the room? Could you check well, the bed? Well, yes, I'll tell you. So a few telltale signs. Often if you arrived at a place and you saw that people's rucksacks and belongings and everything were all out on the front lawn in the sunlight, that was a telltale sign. People were trying to get the bed 
bedbugs out of their backpacks, out of their belongings. And so they'd put them in the sunlight, in the Australian sunlight. And that was a sign to keep walking and try a different <laughs> hostel. But you could also go in. And another thing you could do was you could check the mattress because you were looking for, it looks like black mould, but it's actually bedbug feces. And so it was a telltale sign that there might be bedbugs in that room. So you could go in and you could just ask blatantly, could you have a little look at the mattress to see if there was a thing that looked like black mould? Or you might look around the skirting boards as well for evidence of, of bedbugs. they knew whether they had bedbugs or not. Of course, but they're never going to tell you, really? are they? Well, they have to make money, I suppose. Okay. But anyway, I didn't actually get bitten by bedbugs in Australia. I didn't. But then I went to Thailand. And again, staying in some very, you know, low-cost accommodation along the way. But on the very final night, before I was about to fly home, I thought, you know, I'll splurge. I'll stay in a nice place on the last night before I go to the airport. So I booked into this lovely Bangkok, old-fashioned guest house, all wood, wood panelling, wooden ceilings, wooden floors, wooden beds. Everything was wood. Wasn't thinking that bed bugs love wood. <laughs> I was just thinking... I thought they only like soft furnishings as well. Well, Before you see, this is it. No, they love skirting boards. They love places they can hide out. They oh, love no. creases and mattresses. Oh, they love yeah. nooks and crannies. Places they can hide. But I was told skirting boards is a big one. So anyway, stayed in this lovely place with my now husband, then boyfriend. And uh, the next morning, got up, went to the airport, got on the long haul flight back to London to connect to Dublin. And all of a sudden, I start to itch. And then he starts to itch. Oh dear. And then I start to itch. And, and we're looking at each other. Well. And we're, <laughs> now, we <laughs> weren't engaged at this stage. This was a make or break moment in our relationship. There was nothing attractive about what was happening. And we're confined into seats, obviously. We're sitting beside a stranger. There's three of us in the row. So there's myself, my boyfriend and somebody else. And we start tearing at each other. Well, at, at ourselves, I should say. <laughs> It's not a better because, <laughs> because the itch is awful. But you see, with a bed bug bite, often the itch doesn't come up for several hours. So I'm going to ask Aina about this in a moment. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, do they inject a little bit of anaesthetic? Is there is there something that happens that the, the itch is delayed? But anyway, we sat on this flight back from Bangkok and we scratched and we scratched and we scratched and we watched the bites come up. And you can see they're in little lines. So they they, they call it breakfast, lunch and dinner. So the bed bug will come and they'll bite you and then they'll scurry down your skin another few oh millimetres and they'll God. bite you again and they'll bite you again. So there's, oh there's often goodness. little lines or clusters. Of course, the minute we got back into the airport, we were Googling, what do you do in, in a scenario like this? So when we got back to Dublin, we got back to the apartment that we were staying in and we stripped off, <laughs> we stripped off at the front door, down to our pants, left our rucksacks, everything else at the door and we came in literally in nothing but our underwear. And then we went back out with black bags to retrieve all our belongings and everything went into a boil wash in the washing machine. You didn't throw it away. You we didn't, didn't throw it. it away. We didn't have to burn it oh because goodness, I would have got rid of it. <laughs> because, because, I'm feeling itchy now. because the high temperatures will kill the bed bugs, mm. and we were lucky that was that you know that was they were gone. I don't know if we even brought them back in our rucksacks. We might not have. But a top tip for people is keep your suitcases and your backpacks and your bags zipped. Keep everything zipped when you're in your hotel room, when you're in your accommodation abroad. Easy tip, just so you're not bringing back Yeah, but all these people have returned now in the last couple of days who don't have tickets for the quarter finals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what should they do? 
your tips are get stripped outside your house <laughs> if the cigars <laughs> are being called to streakers <laughs> on every housing estate in Ireland. My tip is to get naked. Yeah, just, you know. <laughs> I mean, we went down to our pants. If you can go the whole hog, go the whole hog. But yeah, that I think, believe, I believe that Honey, is... I'm that, home. <laughs> I, believe, I believe that is the advice. So we know what you did with your clothes and your bag and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What did you do with yourself? Uh, I didn't do anything with myself because there's no, there was nothing on me apart from my pants. So I walked in the door and I was absolutely fine. Like nothing to worry about after that. I think I took an antihistamine. I probably put on some antihistamine cream on the bites. They went down. It's like a mosquito you didn't bite. Have a shower. I may have had a shower, but I can't remember. But what I did do was creams, antihistamines. It's like anybody who's had any kind of an insect bite. It's the same kind of bite. It's itchy. There's a bump. There's a little hive thing. It goes away after a couple of days. So but very you itchy. got it in the fancy place you stayed in when you splashed out. Yeah, but at you, least you think you did. You could have got it anywhere. I could have. And but God no, help the poor person on the plane sitting beside you. Well, that's in fairness. That was my worry. I would shield my husband, my now husband, JP, while he would have a good itch. And then he would try and shield me from this person. <laughs> <laughs> and we were taking it in turns. But that's that's, it, it, there was no other way. You couldn't not. They're the itchiest. And I have, I was actually thinking about it on the way in here. I'm very unlucky in the bedroom, Derek. Uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> because. So am I. I mean, you think that your bed is your I'm sanctuary. Your house is your sanctuary. You go in there and you pull up, you, you sink into the pillow, you pull up the duvet for a good night's sleep, right? Mm. But I, a couple of years ago, in Dublin, not abroad. Um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, I could feel something on my face and slapping myself on my face and getting up and seeing, now I believe, of course, I don't have proof, but I believe I was bitten by a false widow on the side oh of my, my face because it's, it's, there was a swelling there, took a few hours to go down, again, took another antihistamine. But I've also been bitten by sand flies in New Zealand when I was camping. Uh, mosquitoes in practically every country I've been to, they love me. I, and that's another question I want to ask, Aina. Why do mosquitoes bite some people and not other people? And do bed bugs prefer some people to other people? Because mm. apparently they're attracted by your, the carbon dioxide you're breathing out. And we once camped on a, we set up a tent on an anthill at a music festival in Spain. So we got eaten by ants as well. So I was just thinking back to all the times I have been bitten in the night by various insects. Right, Aina, Katrina has questions for you about the bed bugs bite. Do they inject something into you when they bite you? Well, yes. Um, what we're talking about is the, the bedbug C-Max, which is a specific species of bedbug that only needs human blood in order to survive. So it's one of our personal parasites. And when it bites you, it actually puts in painkiller, Derek, okay. and it puts in an anticoagulant so it can get the feed of blood that your blood doesn't, because it's only a tiny hole, relatively speaking, and the blood might coagulate. So what it's doing is it's putting in the painkiller, putting in the anticoagulant, having a good suck, getting the blood, going on to the next bit. So the painkiller stops you noticing it in the beginning. And of course, then as well as that, then it, I mean, the, the, when she got bitten by the spider on the face, she woke up with the pain of it because there's no anticoagulant. The spiders are not supposed to be biting people in the face. But so they don't they haven't evolved that way. But the, this particular bed bug has evolved like this, as indeed mosquitoes do it as well. Things that depend on blood have to make sure that 
their victim gives them the blood before slapping them off. The only one that doesn't actually do that is a thing called the horsefly, which sticks its awfully sore thing into you and it can't pull it out and it fills up with blood and if you were bloody minded enough, you, it would burst on your arm. But the pain is so terrible, you flick it away, cows flick it away with their tail. But everything else wants to do it secretly so you won't know you're getting the thing and that's why it takes a while for that to wear off and then for the pain and the itch and all the rest of it to set in. So that's, that's pretty standard for those kinds of sneaky things. Well, I, I have another question, Aina, and you're not going to like this one, right? I was wondering, what is the use? What is the purpose? Why do we need all these bed bugs in the world? Why do we need all these mosquitoes? If we were to somehow globally eradicate them, would it not be a good thing, Aina? Well, yes, it probably would. I mean, these are parasites that have evolved with the whole species. In the case of mosquitoes, maybe not so much because they haven't just evolved with humans and they are a a source of, of food in the wild for lots of birds and insects that feed on mosquitoes. But nonetheless, they have been draining swamps. They have been changing places where they exist. But the bed bugs are all ours, the same as the fleas are all ours. They're a parasite that have evolved with us because we were probably hairier once. We probably had more of them or, you know, we had fleas, we had ticks, we had lice. They're all all human parasites, the same as any other mammal has. If you have a source of food, then something is going to avail of it. I mean, all the other animals and birds have parasites associated with them. I'm sure they'd be glad to get rid of them too. So I think mosquitoes is probably the only one you can make an ecological case for. And even that will be tenuous because mosquitoes carry disease. The one good thing about bed bugs, if it is a good thing, they don't actually carry any disease. So you're not going to get any kind of a disease from them. The only thing that you might get if you scratch yourself enough with dirty fingernails or what have you, you might get an infection there. But that wasn't given to you initially by the bed bug. They actually don't carry disease if that's any consolation to anybody. I think people often ask, don't they, Anna, about like, why do bedbugs exist? What's their purpose? Their purpose is to make more bedbugs. That's all they really evolutionarily care about. And we're the host that allows them to do that. When you're talking about things like mosquitoes, like whenever I get bitten by a mosquito, and like you, Katrina, they seem to like me a lot. I, I always get the bites. I do console myself that at least that little bit of blood they've taken hopefully will be ongoing nutrition for a bird or something that's going to eat that mosquito. <laughs> do you really think, think that deeply? I have to, I have, like glass <laughs> half full kind of person, Derek. Yeah, well, well has Niall, to be some purpose. you're a good guy, Niall. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that gets me, well, there's two that I really hate. Uh, bedbugs, I've never had an encounter with bedbugs. Thankfully, they sound horrible, Katrina. Me neither, I, thankfully. Yeah. Um, ticks and leeches. I just I'm despise them. them. Too, yeah. oh, at, least, at least with the, the, the leeches they don't cause disease even though they're really no, unpleasant. Lyme so the ticks, disease is on the rise well, I believe. With ticks, yeah talk it is. About it. I would urge people to please check themselves after they've been walking particularly in any kind of woodland or, or grassland because here in Ireland now these deer ticks are quite prevalent in some areas and they can pass this disease on uh, and they have to be, the, the tick has to be attached to you for quite a while I believe before it'll actually transmit this disease into you so it's important to check them but um, like, like with the bed bugs they have an anaesthetic and you just do not feel them and it's so strange with the leeches I remember once actually touching a leech someone showed me one of these in, in Malaysia and said look it's not going to get you it's mouth parts of the other side just touch it I touched it I could actually feel the tingle in my fingers as they went numb they have this anaesthetic in the, the slime that's on them that means you don't even feel them crawling up your leg um, and I remember having one in a guest house I, I was in it was actually it, it came off my shoe and I saw it on the tile floor of the bathroom and this creature was, it was going like a slinky on the floor one end over the other like a sucker on each end just looping over they've no eyes they've no ears it was detached Protecting my body temperature like a little periscope, <laughs> turning around like Terminator, going back after oh, absolutely nightmarish stuff. Yeah, so and they, and they've evolved over over millions of years. The, the whole thing is to get a blood feed off us and and then move on and reproduce. It's awful, Richard. 
Yes, I, I, I gather a different bed bug down in tropical countries. So I wonder if Katrina need worry that the bed bug she would be bringing back from Australia or whatever would survive here at all. Probably wouldn't. What's interesting about bed bugs, a number of things are interesting about bed bugs, is how effective they are. Apparently, it's almost impossible to eradicate them with chemicals. They have become immune to all the things we use against them. Rather like antibiotics, bugs have developed resistance to the antibiotics with which we attack them. And I believe bed bugs are the same in the way I'm told this. I have been bitten by bed bugs. Barbara, my wife is bitten much more effectively than I am in those uh, tropical places where we were if indeed what bit us were bed bugs remember there's so many things out there that could cause swellings two days later or whatever that you can't really be sure what's doing what now pheromones are the key thing there Barbara has pheromones that I don't uh, exude apparently and it is the pheromones apparently that trigger these things uh, and possibly that's an explanation why both of you are very well matched, uh, Katrina and your husband. You're both bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Niall has the strong pheromones too, obviously, uh, Richard. I have a question for Aina because people who were going to the Scotland match, there were newspaper reports saying they were bringing their own bed sheets in the suitcases. But I thought that was kind of nonsense because it's not the bed sheets problem because the bed bugs are all hiding. As far as I know, they hide and they come out at 3, 4, 5 a.m. and do all their eating and feeding and run back in again. So I thought that I idea of bringing your own clean bed sheets was kind of futile, Lena. I, I would agree with you, Katrina, because um, unless you're entirely inside in the bed sheet over your head and everything else, I mean, your head is sticking out, your hands are sticking out, and it's on those exposed bits that they will bite you anyway. I mean, they don't necessarily come up and bite you under the sheet. They can do indeed. But they're not coming from the sheet in the first place. They're coming from under the mattress, behind the headboards. That's where they're coming from. So the sheet is no good. It just protects you from the previous mattress. It mightn't have been a clean sheet or whatever, but it's, it's no protection, no protection protection against the bed bugs. So the protection would be then, Aina, following that logic. You need to bring some jammies, long sleeves jammies, socks, mm. gloves, mm. scarf. Mm. You need to seal your body up, do you? You need to sleep outdoors <laughs> in a tent by the sounds of things because people will be going over for the quarterfinals. There's no question about it. And beyond if we get beyond. So they're going to have to do that. Anyway, Aina, it's for you. It's, it's cover yourself up but I mean I think Katrina inspecting the premises was a good idea that you did in Australia but I'd say accommodation has probably been fairly tight it'll be difficult to get anywhere to stay so they'll just have to examine themselves and like make sure they're not going home with bites and keep the luggage off the floor bring as little luggage as possible and it's your reaction to it. I mean, you were saying they bite some people more than others. Apparently, that's not the case. In some instances, they bite everybody the same, but some people are much more reactive to the bite than others. I mean, my darling spouse, Johnny, and we get bitten by things, but he'll swell up. He looks like he did six rounds in a boxing match. His face is all swollen up and I get bites too. I might feel little bumps, but he reacts to them hugely, much more than I do. So it's the reaction of people to the bites as much as who got bitten or who didn't get bitten. 
Well, anyway, final bit of advice, uh, Katrina, because you've been through this experience. To those who have just come home, to those who are going out, what do you say to them? If you're going out, inspect, inspect, inspect. Have a little look at your mattress. Have a little look at your skirting boards. Talk to the other people in the hotel. They will know. Is anybody sitting at the hotel bar scratching? Telltale sign. If you're on your way back, I would say uh, get to your front door. And just as a precaution, if you can, take off your clothes, walk Mm. over your front door, leave your suitcase there, bag it up and put it in your tumble dryer or your washing machine at a high temperature. Doesn't involve chemicals, Derek, or anything, but hopefully we'll stop bringing the little nasties back to Ireland. I think we'd have to get every guest to come through the door and they're all together to make sure they're not bringing in any bed books. <laughs> Nigel, you were going to say something. Yeah? Just say you could just watch it on TV. That'd be another solution. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah, but I missed the beginning of it. I missed the beginning of it. Anyway, Katrina, thank you very much. It was lovely to see you again. You too, Derek. We'll be scratching when she goes out the door. Bye! <laughs> there goes Katrina. I think we need a break from this. Richard, you were out in Fairview Park the other day looking at the herring gulls. Yes, was very interesting to see him because he was doing a kind of shuffle dance thing, you know. Now, the shuffle dance thing is a technique that some birds use to fool worms that it's raining, they say. This is a theory. The ground is dry. And then the bird comes along and it starts shuffling, standing in one place, treading water, except it's not in the water, it's on the land, and it's banging up and down. And this simulates to a worm who has no hearing, but is uh, is sensitive to vibrations, the the worm down below th- imagines, in worms do, that it's raining up above, and rain means the ground is softening, and that's a time to go to the surface and pick up the detritus that it eats. But it's an interesting evolutionary change that they've managed to devise this method of using the behaviour of worms to catch them. Let's have a listen. Here I am again in Fairview Park, which was once out at sea, really. This is a reclaimed land, but it's a great place just now because it's been rain. And in front of us, we have a herring gull, a very famous bird in many ways. Nobody loves herring gulls except people like me. Uh, But there was a very famous book back in 1954 called A Herring Gull's World, which I remember reading way back and it changed everything. It was by Nico Tinbergen, who was a Nobel Prize winner. That herring gull is interesting because he's doing something that is quite interesting. You see the way he's pattering the ground. Now, a herring gull, let me describe a herring gull, or try to describe a herring gull. A herring gull is a, he's a medium-sized gull. He's quite a big gull. He's not as big as the great blackback, but he's bigger than the blackheaded. Now, he's the medium size, and he's the familiar seagull that people talk about. Hangs around fishing ports and cries a lot. Uh, and he's a very opportunist character. You know, he's, he's a beautiful light grey back with black wing tips. At this time of year, the, the neck is slightly blotched. He's in his winter plumage. And their feet are kind of pinky flesh colored. And he has a very interesting thing, a red spot on his bill. Now that has to do with raising babies because when he goes to the nest and the wife goes to the nest, that might be a male or it might be a female. I'm showing my bias here now. It's, it could be either. But anyway, this particular gull, when he flies to the nest, with food for the babies in his crop the baby taps at the red spot thing and that triggers him to vomit effectively the food into the baby's mouth so that's what the red spot is about now the wingtips are interesting too because the black wingtips are a, a security against wear a bird like that flying around 
there's a lot of wear and tear on its feathers and the, the wingtips get hammering because they're brushing off everything but black pigment gives them extra strength so they have black wingtips so that the feathers will last a bit longer but anyway this particular feather is doing something quite interesting right now he's tapping the ground treading water if you were in the water that kind of a thing but he's treading water on land now it is thought that that is about encouraging creepy crawlies and worms and things to come to the surface because things like worms feed on the detritus that accumulates at the surface but they can't come up when it's too dry but when there's rain and it's wet they come up because they can feed on the decaying material at the surface and the herring gull is trying to fool them by tapping on the ground that this is rain pattering down oh there he's going he's got something he's going down and picking up something that's fooled into coming to the surface so he's thriving now he's cashing in in a sense on the lawnmowers and the park is being mowed now so that the grass is short the soil is near the surface can be accessed you see so he's cashing in on that and he's not alone there's oh it's supposed to be 100 200 gulls all over the park right now here and there doing this kind of thing of course the herring gull he's a great opportunist He'll make a go of anything. Of course, people don't like him for that. He's now catching people's lunches, go flying at people in Stephen's Green when they're having their lunch and stealing their lunches. But well done, Herring Gull. You're a survivor. You're doing very well. And I'm all for your side of the house, even if you do snatch the odd lunch. Thank you very much indeed, Richard. Tap dancing Herring Gull's Nile Hatch. Did you ever see the like of it? I have seen it. it <laughs> of course, we a, all have. <laughs> it's amazing. It really yeah, it just shows just how resourceful they are when it comes to finding food. Uh, herring Gulls are survivors. They have what it takes to cope in even very extreme circumstances. And that they're so quick on the ball to realise, ah, if I mimic these raindrops, it'll bring the worms up. I say realise, they may not know exactly why they're doing what they're doing, but that's why it's, it nonetheless works. All right, let's move on from birds and talk about insects. Let's say hello now to Terry Flanagan at his home in Dublin 15. Terence! Yes, Derek, it's all about insects at the moment. There was a great reaction to last week's report on the arrival of the ivy bee in Ireland. And recently, I was in the Natural History Museum here in Dublin. That's the dead zoo, as it's more commonly called. Now, most people, they go to see the large animals there, the basking shark hanging from the ceiling or the giant Irish tear just inside the front door. But what most people don't realise is that the total collection is in excess of 2 million animals. These are mostly small animals, insects and so on. And although they're not on show to the general public, they do form a very important collection for scientists to work on. In fact, some of these insects were collected by Charles Darwin himself, who sent them here to a very famous Irish scientist, a man named Alexander Halliday to name them and identify them. Curator Aidan O'Hanlon showed me round. So Terry, if you want to come back behind the scenes, um, I'll show you some of the special collections that we hold. So you could say that the public galleries are really the tip of the iceberg, but um, all the cool scientific stuff happens behind the scenes. Right, so we're moving into your office in here now. And wow, I can see lots and lots and lots of drawers full of specimens here. So when people think of the Natural History Museum, they think they come in and they want to see animals laid out and so they can admire them. But the museum is more than that. Yeah, certainly. Like one role of the museum is in public education. It's to house a gallery housing all the exhibits that the public can come in and, and observe for free and yeah. learn about the natural world. 
But another function in the museum that people might not think about often is that we hold scientific collections for scientists to come in and work on. And usually this is for, for biodiversity research, so either in naming species and unraveling their kind of evolutionary relationships, so that would be taxonomic research, but also increasingly in working out their past distributions, assessing things like have populations declined, invasive species, new species arriving in Ireland, are they spreading? Um, you can do all this sort of research with our collection. And just to give you an idea of the numbers, so in the natural history collections, we've got on display in the building, I think maybe about 20,000 exhibits, Whereas in storage, in our scientific collections, which aren't intended for public display or for scientific work, we have something like 2 million specimens. Wow, that's something else. Can we go out and have a look at some of these specimens that you're talking about? So what have we got in this top one? Um, So this top one, it'll be mostly insects from Ireland. So all of these boxes are from a person called Alexander Halliday, who was an early entomologist in Ireland, an early taxonomist. He named hundreds of species as new to science from Ireland. So people think when you go and find a new species, it's often in some sort of tropical paradise. But when entomology was an early science and when taxonomy was early, countless species were being named as new to science from right here in Ireland. And a lot of that work was done by Halliday. These insects are absolutely tiny. They're, they're like mites, are they? They're, well, they're tiny little parasitic hymenoptera. So that's the group that bees, ants and wasps yeah. belong to. But even bees, ants and wasps, most people are familiar with furry bees and the wasps that yeah, sting you and the ants are less than well what half a centimeter or well, less th- these are these are the little parasitic and parasitoid uh, wasps which are the most numerous probably the most numerous type of animal on the planet really i'd say a lot of them probably haven't been discovered yet and in this collection this particular box here there's there's probably about 50 of them i pulled this one out in particular because there was a note left by one of my predecessors that says including Darwin material. So we in, in the entomology collection, we have specimens collected by Charles Darwin. So, so some of the material that Charles Darwin actually collected on his travels would be here in this museum. Yeah, his insects, mostly parasitoid wasps and flies. And the reason we ended up with them was through this Halliday collection. So Halliday, when he died, his collection was sent to the trustees in Trinity. And then it, was, it later was acquired by the National Museum in, I think, 1876, thereabouts. And as it turned out, he had lots of specimens sent to him by Charles Darwin. It was through an, through an intermediate entomologist colleague that they had mutually in England. Yeah. But the reason Halliday ended up with all of Darwin's parasitic wasp and fly specimens is because Halliday, he was the Irish expert, but he was also the international expert of these insect groups. So he so, was capable of naming yeah. these so new species. Darwin was sending them to Halliday for Halliday to verify what they were. To identify them, yeah, mm. or to name them probably for the first time. And a lot of it just sat there forgotten for, for a very long time. Are you still receiving specimens from the public and from scientists? Absolutely, yeah, all the time. And most of the time, it's kind of one-off specimens. So it could be, for example, a record of a species that's new to Ireland. So a recent one was um, box tree moth caterpillars. So this is a species that has shown up recently, only a couple of years ago. And uh, a member of the public in Dublin found these unusual caterpillars. So Paolo, the keeper, went and collected them, and I bred them. To rear them to adulthood to identify them because caterpillars can be tricky to ID. And it turns out it's the box tree moth, so this is an invasive species. Turned up only in Britain maybe 10, 15 years ago. Turned up in Ireland about two or three years ago. And now we have evidence that it's actually breeding here. So you get one-off records like that or the Asian hornet when that showed up two years ago. But occasionally as well you'll get a large collection. So someone will donate a large entomological collection that, that they've been working on for their whole life or it could be from a university project like a, a PhD student that's been working on a certain group of animals like bees or something like that if they're studying pollinators. Do you get many scientists coming in looking for help? 
all the time it's not necessarily always looking for help from us sometimes we get that people want specimens identified and so on um, or they want advice on certain animals they might have found or if they have a problem with an infestation in their house sometimes they'll, they'll ask us though we're not in the pest control business but yes we get scientists visiting all the time more so to work on the collections so if they are but what do you mean work on the collections well, so they will be, say you'll get an expert on hawk moths, was a recent guy that was in. And hawk moths are from the family Sphingidae. They're the large, people yeah, might be familiar with the Yeah, the hummingbird or the elephant Yeah, exactly, moth. yeah, exactly. Um, and worldwide, they're a huge group. Um, and we've got a lovely overseas collection as well as all the Irish species. But the taxonomic expert on those, for instance, was in with us recently. And they were revising the nomenclature of that group. So they needed to go to the original description. So we have a lot of what are called type specimens. So this is when you assign a name the first scientific name to that species comes from this one specimen it's, it's sort of like the standard for that species is one way of thinking about it and because of the age of our collection and because of the the geographical span of our collection we have hundreds of type specimens from all around the world so if you were for example revising a group of, of, of insects in this case you would need to go to the first description and interrogate the, the first specimen that describes this species and say, oh, well, it is that one, or actually this is something new. And in our case, for that particular group, it turned out to be a new species altogether. So the, this person got to name a new species from our old collections, from a specimen that was collected back in the 1860s or something. So really, this is a kind of a symbiotic relationship. You're helping the scientists and the scientists are helping you. And in the long run, it's the Natural History Museum that wins out. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we gain because we get the experts in to help us uh, keep our collection up to date, I suppose, in terms of the taxonomy. That would be our job as curators to arrange the collection and to care for it and to facilitate access for researchers. Um, so it, it's really more than what the public think, a place to come in maybe on, on a wet Tuesday afternoon to get in out of the rain and to look at these lovely animals. And of course, it's for free. But it's much more than that. It's about collecting these animals and parts of these animals and preserving them. Yeah, it's, it's a huge scientific collection. I mean, the, the, what people will see in this lovely old Victorian building is really the tip of the iceberg. And the work that we do behind the scenes is the, the scientific work on the, the vast majority of the collections that the National Museum holds. Thank you very much indeed, Terry. More details on the website, rte.ie forward slash Moody Nile. You're giving me that nod, that look, that noddy look, that looking nod. What do you want to say to me? <laughs> I, I find insects really fascinating. I really enjoyed Terry's report there. Insects, of course, were the very first creatures ever to fly. They were, really? Yes, over 400 million years ago. Early forms of, of, of creatures that resembled dragonflies, essentially. They were the first to before take... Before the, the dinosaurs? Long, 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 long before the dinosaurs. We're closer to the dinosaurs now than those dinosaurs were to those insects that first flew. This is before there were flowers and plants were just taking hold and they were the first creatures to come out into the air to exploit this and to fly. So insects have had a very long time, nearly half a billion years to be able to fly and perfect it. And I thought we learned all we know about flying from birds. Well, <laughs> birds obviously are the most famous flying creatures today. They're, they're Johnny-come-latelys as far as the insects are concerned. And if it wasn't for the insects that were fueling the birds and that they take flight in the first place to catch them, it probably never would have happened. I think that the birds, though, have really, really perfected it. Uh, birds are master flyers. The feathers are the most amazing structures to allow them to do this. And there's so much about their aerodynamics and millions of years of evolution that just means that they're masters of it. And that's what we're going to learn about now. Are you ready? Would you like to go on a journey with me? Of course, always. Well, strap yourself in, as they say. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can it's fair to say we've come a long way from the Wright brothers' first flight in 1903, but the concept of human flight didn't start with them. 
Stories and myths of humans flying exist throughout history in many cultures, most likely inspired by birds flying overhead. As our old friend, wildlife artist and author Don Conroy says, if you want to see nature, look up. There's always a bird in the sky. Most of what we know about flying comes from studying birds, like Project Fellowfly, undertaken by Airbus, which sees a pair of aircraft flying in formation one behind the other, allowing the trailing jet to benefit from the lift generated by the preceding aircraft's vortices. It draws inspiration from the V-shaped flight pattern of migrating geese. This technique is known as wake energy retrieval or surfing the air upwash of a lead bird. And it's believed during commercial aircraft operations, air upwash enables a follower aircraft to benefit from free lift, resulting in reduced fuel consumption. To tell us more about it, we're joined from France by Jonathan Beck, project leader for Fellowfly with Airbus. Hello, Jonathan. How are you today? Hello, Derek. How are you? Where would we be without birds when it comes to flight, Jonathan? Project Fellowfly. Can you explain? So this project, the project Fellowfly, is an Airbus project that aims at reducing the environmental footprint of our long-range aircraft by taking inspiration of what the birds uh, have been doing for several uh, thousands of years already. So if you look in the sky, I'm sure you already have seen birds uh, doing migration in, uh, in a flock. They are uh, flying close to one another for a very good reason. It's because by doing so, they are uh, saving quite a lot of energy. Scientists have been studying that for years already, and what they have found out is that by flying close to one another, they can save up to 10% of the energy. They have done so by uh, putting... Uh, heartbeat measurement uh, devices on the wild geese, as well as by measuring the, the flapping rate of the bird. So the idea here for fellow fly is to mimic that uh, for airplanes. So there are obvious differences between an airplane and a geese, but from an aerodynamic standpoint, the concept remains the same. A wing generates a wake vortex. Around that wake vortex, you do have a smooth updraft. If you position an aircraft in that smooth updraft, you can gain up, uh, up to 10% of fuel saving as well. So the idea of the Fellowfly project is to do just that. Uh, and there are several components to that project. First, there is a technological component, uh, how to be able to automatically position an aircraft with regard to an aircraft wake. Then there is a regulation and operational uh, concept that needs to evolve to support that kind of operation. My goodness, it sounds very ambitious. And so many questions jump into my mind. The first one is the numbers of geese that fly in V formation. Anything from 30 to 100 birds, sometimes more. So can we expect to see a squadron of aircraft flying in V formation? Passenger aircraft I'm talking about. And the next one is as... I understand it, and Niall and Richard and maybe yourself can correct me. I thought that the lead bird takes a break and somebody else goes to the front. So our aircraft going to be switching position en route. 
So that's a very good question. Indeed, uh, for the birds, they are uh, flying uh, with flocks of uh, several birds. For the aircraft, we are going to be very pragmatic there because it's very complex things to achieve already. So we want to start very realistically by uh, pairing two aircraft uh, with one another. And that is already quite a challenge, both from a technical perspective, but as well from an operational perspective. If we want to uh, put several aircraft at the same point at the same time, it's going to be a very high complexity in terms of operations. So here we are going to be very realistic, starts with two. When it works with two, when it's in service for several years, then clearly we will want to extend the concept to several aircraft to have even more fuel gains. Uh, could you repeat your second question, please? The second part of my question has to do with who leads the flock. When geese are flying in V formation, the leader often drops back and is replaced by another one of the birds. And I'm just wondering if that's what's going to happen in your fellow fly V formation. There is a limit to what we copy from the birds. Uh, the strategy itself, the way they save energy, the concept, uh, aerodynamic concept remains the same. In terms of strategy, we have to adapt to the real world. We can't uh, very easily swap position. At first, the aircraft will be further separated from one another uh, due to safety concern. So the, for safety reason, sorry. Uh, so the, the position of the aircraft will be much further away from the leader aircraft. Typical separation between the two aircraft will be around uh, three, three kilometers. So considering that uh, formation geometry, making a swap will not be as easy as it is for birds. So we are not intending to swap position during the, the formation flight due to the geometry of the formation itself. Now, how close are you talking about exactly? Because commercial aircraft, I think, have to keep a separation of 1,000 feet vertically. I don't know what it is horizontally. Presume it's something similar, but a minimum of 1,000 feet, as I understand it. So the, the vertical separation, as you mentioned, is minimum 1,000 feet in two-day operation when they are within a lateral separation of, uh, of a circle of five nautical miles. This is the typical separation that we have uh, over domestic routes. Uh, in this concept, we want to be obviously at the same altitude. This is where you do save the energy. This is where you can take benefit from the leader aircraft wake. And we want to be at uh, around three kilometers in terms of longitudinal separation the follower aircraft will be trailing the leader aircraft by about three kilometers. This is the position that we uh, flight tested already in uh, 2020 and 2021. And this is the optimum position that we found both in terms of fuel saving, but as well in terms of passenger comfort. But not everybody's going to be travelling from, let's say, Dublin International Airport to Leeds, Bradford. So I'm wondering how many people do you expect and hope to transport in one direction at any one time? So if you look already at the existing traffic, and this is precisely what we have done to build up the concept of operation, we looked at the traffic of 2019. The entire year, we analyzed the flight tracks of each uh, aircraft in this year. And what we have found is that even though aircraft are not departing from the same airport and, are, and do not go to the same airport, when you are considering intercontinental flight, the routes are very similar. 
Um, for example, there are a lot of uh, aircraft departing end of the morning from uh, Europe going to the east coast of the US. They do not have the same departure airport, they do not have the same uh, destination, but they share 90% of their cruise phase. And this is where the fellow fly concept applies, only to the cruise operation, which is quite organized already. And in terms of number of, uh, of pairs that we have identified naturally occurring in 2019, that was about uh, 100,000 over the Atlantic in 2019. So without changing anything to the 2019 operation, we could have paired 100,000 aircraft. Not 100,000 in a flock, just pairs of aircraft. Indeed, yes. Well, in, in our analysis, those would be pairs of aircraft. We focus for now only on pairs of aircraft, one leader, one follower. Nile Hatch. This really is interesting stuff, Jonathan. It could be revolutionary. Anything that we can do to try and, and save emissions, save energy and make uh, air, air transport uh, more um, efficient and less uh, environmentally damaging is, uh, is really important. I'm curious, would this require cooperation between different airlines? Is the idea that airlines would partner up? Would planes then, let's put, let's say, swap partners mid-destination and go behind another plane? How is it envisaged that would work? And would it require differences in the way that flights are scheduled? Because sometimes there's delays in departure sometimes flights are cancelled. What mm -hmm. happens if your partner doesn't take off but you still make the journey? That is again a very good question. Um, the concept that we are pushing based on our study of 2019 flights is an opportunistic concept. We know that uh, flight departure is not always kept uh, right on time. And even if you are considering a five-minute delay in departure, that's already make a pair uh, non-viable in terms of emission because of the, of the speed change that you would need to achieve to make a pair. So what we are pushing is an opportunistic concept of operation that will identify a pair after they have departed, after both aircraft are departed. Basically, there will be a service that looks up in the, in the, in the sky, says those two aircraft are flying close together already, they have a similar destination, let's pair them. That uh, can be done inside the same airline, provided that the airline fleet is uh, sufficiently large, or can be done with several airlines participating in the concept. And that collaboration between airlines could uh, more than double the number of opportunities that you can achieve. So it's very important for airlines to start collaborating on that topic as well. I know that when geese are migrating in the famous V formation, that those vortices that aid the, the trailing birds, they come off the wingtips of the lead bird and so on, back through the line. How does it work with aircraft? Is the vortex coming off the wingtip or is it from the body of the plane itself? So yes, it is the exact same aerodynamical concept between uh, aircraft and birds. The wake vortex departs from the wingtip. And what you do see uh, when you are looking in the, in the sky, the white uh, contrails uh, are actually the materialization of, the, of, the, of those wake vortices. They seem not to depart from the wingtip, but that's just because the source of the ice crystal comes from the engine. But then the wake vortex itself comes from the wingtip. And I'm curious, does it make a big difference between different aircraft models? Do some types of aircraft um, produce uh, vortices that are easier for others to fall into the slipstream of, or um, does it make a big difference? The vortex characteristic itself is not that different between, uh, between each aircraft. Uh, clearly, the weight of the aircraft changes the strength of the vortex, but that's basically the difference that we have in terms of aerodynamics of the vortex itself. 
There is, however, a very important point to, to think about is that when we want to pair aircraft together, a very basic need is that they fly at the same speed. So the speed each aircraft has in cruise clearly determines which aircraft can be paired with, uh, with another. Is that the same for birds now? Will they all fly at the same speed? Well, when using those V-formations, yes, they do. And you can see that they maintain that general shape very, very well, even when flying at, 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 quite, a, at quite a high speed for a bird. Mm. Obviously, planes are going a lot faster than that. Um, but yeah, from, from, from that point of view, yes, they have to be moving at the same speed in order for it to be efficient. Otherwise, the, if a bird behind was going faster, it would go out of the vortex. Yeah. Um, and then we'd, we'd have no advantage anymore. Jonathan, I'm just wondering where you're going to recruit your pilots. Are you going to go to the military? <laughs> That's a good point. Military pilots are obviously well aware of, uh, of that kind of concept. They have been flying in formation for years already. They do not have the same intent when they fly in formation. For military, the main goal is to maintain a very small footprint in the, in the air, uh, but they are already used to having a, a close aircraft to them, uh, another aircraft close to them. Um, here, we will rely much more on the aircraft system itself to do all of the, of the automation. Uh, we want to have um, uh, as, uh, le- as little impacting as possible concept of operation for the, for the flight crew. Basically, uh, anything that uh, relates to maintaining a position with regard to a wake vortex will be fully automated. And what about turbulence and stormy weather and things like that? Then again, the system that we have developed so far uh, is able to automatically detect whether the environmental conditions are suitable or not to maintain the the vortex tracking. In the system that we have developed, there is an anticipation means built in that decides whether or not to stay on the vortex depending on on the weather condition. Any strong wind gradient would be automatically avoided by the follower aircraft. Because I've often been on aircraft, particularly coming transatlantic, that have hit air pockets, I think they're called, and it just feels like it's dropped several thousand feet. And I wonder how that affects your V formation. But then again, this is automatically handled by the, by the system. When we demonstrated that technology in 2021, in November 2021, uh, we made a demonstration by uh, actually doing two long-haul flights between Toulouse and Montreal and back from uh, Montreal to Toulouse. In that uh, flight trial, we were in the real weather condition. Usually when we do flight tests, we tend to, to select the weather condition. That day, we couldn't select the weather condition because we were in the middle of the traffic. And when we entered the jet stream, we had uh, turbulences and so on. And at that time, we could uh, evaluate the robustness of, of uh, our system and we were very pleased with the results. Jonathan, that's a fascinating proposal, I must say. Now, you saved about 5% in fuel on that famous trip to Montreal and back from Toulouse. 5% each way or 5% overall, or does it matter? So that 5% is a mean of... uh, So it is what we have achieved in those uh, uh, transatlantic flight trials. Uh, For the the follower aircraft only, Uh, on both uh, flights. So both uh, Toulouse to Montreal and Montreal to Toulouse, we saved about 5% of the trip fuel. Well, now, if you look at geese, uh, if you measure them in terms of goose length, uh, the geese are flying three or four goose lengths behind the vortex. In your case, you are putting the following aircraft back three and a half kilometers away. Now, the vortex must have 
declined in power or dissipated by the time this plane arrives. Is the three and a half kilometer thing a, a kind of a trade-off? Would you love to be right up with the front plane? Or are you going back as far as you consider it safe, necessarily safe to go? So the decay of the vortex is a time uh, parameter. Uh, as you know, uh, aircraft are flying much faster than, uh, than geese. Uh, when we are flying at Mach 0.85, time separation at a given point between the leader and the follower to overfly the same point is about 7 to 10 seconds. In those 10 seconds, the vortex has no time to decay at all. Actually, we have made specific measurements uh, to try to assess the impact of uh, longitudinal distance of the, on the wake strands. And what we have found in flight tests is that uh, between 0.5 nautical miles, which is about uh, one kilometer up to uh, three nautical miles, which is about six kilometers, there is no change in strands of the vortex. The vortex decay happens further down the line uh, because it is time-based. Uh, it's based on time. Is there an advantage in having a very large plane up front? An A380, for instance, would produce a much greater vortex uh, than a smaller plane would. So is this dictating a big lead plane followed by progressively smaller planes in the train back along? So as uh, we explained earlier already, the main characteristic for a pair to be viable is that they fly at the same speed. So the A380 is, uh, is flying at the same speed as the A350. So that could very well be a, a very good candidate for the leader aircraft. And you are perfectly right. We tend to put the heavier aircraft in front in order to generate a stronger weight, which in the end generated the, strong, the higher benefits. But then we have to consider the number of aircraft that are going to, uh, to participate to the operation. And the, the more, uh, the larger the fleet is, uh, the higher, highest the chances that you can find a, a pair. So with that regard, A380 will be very localized on specific routes. Uh, A350, uh, however, is more uh, distributed around the world, making it a better candidate in terms of probability to find a matching pair. But you are very right in terms of uh, pure instantaneous benefits. Having an A380 as a leader would be uh, indeed uh, um, a very good thing. And of course, the saving will have to be distributed between the two airlines, if there are two airlines. If the fellow in front is expending all the energy, the following aircraft is benefiting. So therefore, we must redress the balance economically and the fellow in front must pay some of the way of the fellow behind. And if you have uh, several planes all along, will there be a 5% improvement at each stage back along so that a plane that's five back will be much more fuel efficient? than the ones up front. Is there going to be an economic adjustment needed in this? So when we are considering more than two aircraft, the third or fourth aircraft are saving the same amount of energy because it is still flying, uh, surfing a single vortex from the aircraft in front. So that means that leader aircraft saves nothing, follower aircraft each save about 5% of their trip fuel. So indeed, this will have to be accounted for in value sharing operations. But in the end, it is up to the operators to decide how they want to split the benefits between them. Are you optimistic? Will this happen, do you think, on a grand scale? 
So I am very optimistic that this will happen. Uh, first, because we already showed that it is technically feasible, and I am convinced that the, the benefits that we can have in, with such uh, kind of operation will be very valuable in the future of aviation in terms of emissions. Well, it's a very interesting future that lies ahead of us for air travel. And I'm looking forward to flying in V formation myself. I've seen the geese do it many times, as have you, Niall Hatch. And I bet you've sat on the ground and looked up and thought, I'd love to be able to do that. Oh, yes. And I think I think for, for, for centuries, people wondered, why do they fly in these V shapes? Why are they doing it? Now we know. And it really is amazing. And also how what we see happening in nature can really benefit us in terms of technology and human advancement. It's brilliant. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. And that's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Don't forget you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Moonymind. Thanks to Enani Launa, Richard Collins, Niall Hatch and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is Michelle Brown. Until next week, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) 